Hey, everybody. You are listening to That's Debatable, a podcast of the Prompt Magazine. I am Callie in Brooklyn. With me, as always, is Dave in D.C. And Dave, how you doing tonight? I'm good. It's good to hear your voice again, man. It's been it's- too long. It's always too long. But given given how long it has been this time and how much has occurred in the meantime, it's borderline criminal. It's not fair to the dozens of people who, who look forward to the... Uh, to the podcast dropping. Absolutely not. And I would imagine people looking for solace in these trying times, we've arguably abandoned them. So I think there's something, yeah, there's something I think we can do to probably walk that back. See if we yeah. can uh, bring a little light to the darkness, like our our, nom- our now officially crowned nominee, Joe Biden. The, uh, the, la- <laughs> the last time that we spoke, I think, was before the George Floyd murder. It was, yep, I would so- be curious... What, you know, just how have you been kind of absorbing the world for the last few months? What is your current state of play with respect to the election, the future of the republic? Oh, I mean, everything I am, in between. Where, where, in, where, where, what's your headspace? So I'm in full, I'm in full pessimism mode. I'm in, you know, sort of decadent apocalyptics. I think things are bad and are just going to keep getting worse. And yeah, that's been, that's been a lot to deal with over the past few months. I've been, uh, yeah, I've, I've been, you know, still in the four walls of my apartment most of the time, and just pretty pissed off about the way things are going in general. So that's been that's been fun. And especially in New York, you know, when the George Floyd protests broke out, you know, in a lot of ways, that was sort of the end of the really intense phase of the lockdown here. So looking back on it now, I associate that period of the end of May, beginning of June uh, with a real sort of sea change in what life in New York City has been like in 2020. You know, I mean, it was. um, Yeah, so that's been sort of strange now looking back on it with just a little bit of distance. And, you know, now that we uh, the night that we're recording this, uh, you know, the protests which had gone into a bit of abatement are picking up again. So it's yeah, it's just one more one more wave of the year to try to ride. And I don't know about you, man, but I've sort of long given up on trying to. I don't know, not predict necessarily what's going to happen because I think that I think that's always sort of a fool's game. But like, like even just sort of idly thinking about what could happen, right? Possible outcomes like over the next few weeks, several months, it's it's become sort of impossible to do, man. I just feel like I feel like nothing I have learned or experienced has really prepared me for what this year has been like. Well, isn't and that I, doesn't I, that doesn't that uh, do, make you at all jaded in your pessimism like does the fact that you were you were probably optimistic about the sanders campaign at one point and things were looking good and you were wrong then so maybe you just don't have a good sense of what the next few months look like and and in fact biden's gonna kick the crap out of trump and the democrats will take the senate and they'll pursue policies that you like and, and and it will be a tectonic shift in the right direction in the next few months right is that not a possibility if you look at the polls isn't that empirically the most likely possibility well it's it's one thing for biden to win which i devoutly hope happens but it's quite another thing for him to to follow through right or to carry out carry out the policies that i would consider to be uh, you know, most beneficial. And it depends very much what the House looks like, what the Senate looks like. So, so it's, you're it's, more depressed than the typical Democrat. Most Democrats mm-hmm. are at a point where they're they're seriously depressed. But if Biden won and the Democrats took the Senate back, they're like extraordinarily happy because they've kind of overcome something. Whereas it seems like with you, you think that that's like a necessary but not sufficient 
development to getting to that point of general contentment, right? Oh, yeah, precisely, right? It's a question. It's a question of doing triage, you know, or if you if you put out a fire in one part of your house, but other parts of the house are still on fire, well, you've made some progress, but there's still a lot of work to go, you know, and it's so, yeah, just be, it's weird. He, as far as I see it, he has to win, right? That's the absolute baseline. There's just no realistic scenario as far as my mind goes, you know, uh, you know, that, that leans to the alternative, but it's, if he does win, there's then this whole other spectrum of possible outcomes that I'm that I'm somewhat pessimistic about, you know, I mean, do you, I, well, yeah, I mean, what's you know, your, what's, what's, I mean, how, I, how I, optimistic are you feeling these days? You know, I feel like Biden, I, I now think it is less likely Biden is going to win than I did two, three weeks ago. And I don't know what is responsible for the shift. Maybe, maybe the, when Trump was coming on doing those press conferences every day, and he uh-huh. his approval rating like couldn't you know k- kept getting lower and lower and Biden kept doing relatively better than him in general election polls. It it is hard to kind of replicate that, right? I mean, you you can't expect that that kind of high watermark was going to just remain the kind of uh, uh, positioning of the candidates from March until November, right? There's oh, an inevitably going to be volatility. So it just feels like we're trending a little bit more toward Trump now, though it at the same time, Biden's winning in pretty much every battleground state. And there are states, you know, he probably won't end up winning, but he could. A a lot of the polls would suggest that he could win in Georgia and Arizona. Um, Right. Arizona especially is looking promising. Yeah. So so the you know, if the if the polling were switched right now. And Trump and and if like over the last six months, you've seen every time you saw Biden's polling number, it was actually Trump and Biden and Trump just switched. So Biden would have been down six for the last, you know, in that scenario right now, you would be apoplectic. Right. Because you would say to yourself, there's no way that Biden can overcome this. And, you know, so part of you has to wonder to what degree is the are we just kind of suffering from a PTSD of a of a extraordinarily perfect storm of developments in 2016 that are unlikely to be replicated. So in in that respect, you you may be a little more down on things than you potentially should be given the numbers that you're looking at. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? Oh, well, no. Well, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that I think, I think people, people who are of of an anti-Trump persuasion all have some kind of PSD from 2016. Right. And I think because of the, of the seeming improbability of his win, people are reacting to that and being extra cautious. Right. And it's good. You should be extra cautious, even though the numbers look really good for Biden, especially against a guy who has never once been, never once had the approval of 50% plus one of the voting public. And, you know, it's one thing we never talk about in the context of the election. No one is talking about the possibility that he could somehow win the popular vote. We've just given up on that idea because <laughs> because we know that he's never been that popular, you know. So but I guess it's more a question of saying I, I think that dynamic is accurate. And I think that explains a lot of the trepidation and the sort of um, you know, the uh, the danger of sort of spitting in fate's eye that comes up about this. Pivoting quickly away from the election and, and like looking rather than in like a one to two year horizon, look into like a 
one, you know, two to four decade horizon. Uh-huh. Do, do you do you think that in our lifetime there will be um, like when when we pass away, God willing, in many, many years from now, mm-hmm. America will clearly not be even even close to a, a hegemonic nation. Right. China, some other country will have kind of overwhelmed it. And, and, and whatever that looks like, we will clearly exist in that world and it will widely be understood that way. Kind of like the way nobody thinks right now that the British Empire is anything what they oh, thought it right. was in, in you know the 1920s and 30s. Um, yeah. No, I th- think oh, that's I think likely. Oh, yeah. I think we're definitely. I, I, I thought of this for a long time. And I think I mean, you and I have talked about this. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that. We talked about this in college. We talked about yeah, this in exactly. college. Yeah. Yeah. And which, and again, I just think we're on, we're just further along the trajectory that was already evident, you know, when we were in college. And I think, I think on the one hand, we're definitely headed toward a post-imperial future, right? The, the, that sort of post-Cold War hyperpower period where we were simply the only power that mattered mm-hmm. uh, is, is irretrievably gone. And that's, that's, that is what it is. Um, I'm much more concerned about, the actual fate of our system of government. I mean, my my big fear is that we're on a course now such that if you look at a you know two, three, four decade timeline, we have we there's a very strong chance that we have nothing that resembles uh, a democracy in a 40 year period, and we have um, a much more authoritarian um, a a system of government that's even more insulated from popular pressure, and that's that's what worries me a lot, and that's why even if we wake up on November 4th, and let's assume the very best case scenario that uh, you know Biden's victory is substantial enough that we don't have to spend weeks you know litigating. Which is case. not going to happen. It's precisely right? right. But even in that best case scenario, uh, we're going to be in a world in which Trump is still alive, and you know he's never going to shut up. And we're going to be in a world in which Republicans have learned. Uh, I think really bad lessons from Trump in terms of what you can get away with in the public eye. And people are going to try to run the Trump playbook and eventually one of them is going to succeed who is much more smarter, much more smarter, Jesus, much smarter than (laughs) much more. It's been a long week, man. uh, And much more disciplined than Trump. And when you have a person who's able to run the Trump playbook book without Trump's, um, you know, just you know, yogurt brain, then we're in real trouble. And I, nothing about the past four years suggests to me that the guardrails are strong enough to prevent us from really doing harm to ourselves. So that that I worry about a lot. Yeah, I, I wonder. So two things. You, you make a good point. I think we may have talked about it before, but it, it's somewhat ironic that Trump is so you know, prodigious in his ability to know how to manipulate the media so that his followers think what he wants them to think, right? Uh-huh. He he can do that. There's nothing I don't think that he can't do, which is why when I see him laying the groundwork for stuff, whether it's undermining, you know, data with respect to COVID or talking about the Postal Service after mm-hmm. the election, he's clearly when he's doing that, playing a long game, laying the foundation for some future argument that he wants to have, that that right. his people have been eating up, you know, little crumbs of something. And, and it's big, you know, so he when, when I see him doing that, it's frightening. You know what I mean? It's almost like seeing troop movement far away that you, yes. you don't know quite what direction they're going, but but, you know, they're up to no good. 
but Trump is a good example of someone who, I mean, I don't even think it's a, it's a, it's a talent so much as, as just sort of, you know, Trump has this instinct for what's, uh, what the press will buy. And he's always had a sort of, you know, he's always had an insight into that. And our, our political media has done a lot of the work for him. I mean, our political media has made every effort, every effort to normalize him, even if it's just, you know, cleaning up his incoherent ramblings at various, you know, pressers or things like that, where it's plain that he can't, um, can't talk good, uh, or think well or anything like that. I mean, so again, it's not going to take someone who is much more sophisticated than him, just a little bit more discipline. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, all of those precedents are there. There's there's there hasn't been really effective pushback. There hasn't really been pushback within the Republican Party. You know what I mean? It'd be hard to I mean, if you could imagine a president, you know, God help us, Tom Cotton or like a Josh Hawley or something like that. What what institutional restraint is there in the Republican Party that would stop them from running the Trump playbook uh, with just a bit more finesse? And it's yeah, you people uh, who would otherwise not be in, you know, people who who are not intuitively predisposed to engage in that. Right. Will now see an opening and see a playbook being written for them that they can kind of combine with much more honed political instincts, right? And, and, I mean, right? because, and, and, because yeah. one of Trump's one of Trump's I think most important roles that he's played in our system is that because he just doesn't give a fuck, because you know norms and decorum and the rules of Washington don't matter to him, he had none of the you know none of the restraint or the inhibition to just go plowing through these things that would have I think hobbled any other Republican. Now that they've seen that there's not a significant price to pay for that. That so long as you can, so long as you can make this bond with the Republican base, you can pretty much get away with anything you want. So long as you, so long as you keep that base on on board by presenting what you are doing as, you know, another front in the culture wars or just owning the libs or making it harder for poor people to live or what have you. I mean, you can, you can just get away with anything. But at the same time, if Trump, does get routed and the mm-hmm. Democrats do take the Senate and all of these senators who kind of hitched their fortunes on, on Trump's wagon lose. Right. Doesn't that, right. Pretend, you know, that, that, that could undermine the incentive that you're talking about, right? It could, it could have people kind of say, maybe that doesn't work or, 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 but I guess at the same time to answer my own question, you, you can, you cannot adopt the Trump playbook while at the same time take advantage of his kind of diluting the significance of the rule of law, like violating the Hatch Act at the White House. You know what I mean? Like, oh, like that's precise. the kind of thing that, that could conveniently be employed that used to be a scandal, used to be the thing that would lead meet the press on Sunday and be like an actual long term discussion is now now you can just kind of easily get away with stuff. That, that used to be more of a problem for you, right? Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Because once you've once you've established, for instance, that uh, n- not to say that no one cares about the Hatch Act, for instance, but once you've established as conventional wisdom that no one cares about the Hatch Act, how can you how can you walk that back? What's 
to stop any future president, Democrat or Republican. I mean, and that's just I mean, that's just a truism about the presidency, right, is that all presidents end up leaving behind these set of precedents that can be that can be better or, you know, applied in better or worse manner by successors, depending on their talent. And it's hard to think of a case in which a president has established a precedent that that was gone back on. Or that what or that even really went sort of undeveloped in terms of its potential for a president getting done what he or she wants to get done. And because I don't think there's any reason to assume that Republicans after a Trump defeat would be any less intransigent toward the Democrats, you're going to have a frustrated President Joe Biden and a very frustrated Democratic Party that is, I'm sure, going to start mulling what it can do as far as norm demolition and, you know, flouting, uh, you know, flouting things that were once considered unflautable to get done what it is they want to get done from a policymaking perspective. But it seems like you are generally a, a, a radical leaning person that you would support that, right? I mean, you, you would be, that's the thing I've never quite understood about you. There, there's a level of hypocrisy, not to kind of, mm. we, we've been we agreeing with each other. We, we've yeah. been agreeing with each other up to this point. Let, let's find, let's find the wedge issues now so uh-huh. I can start poking and prodding at you. Um, but it seems like if, if, um, if Bernie won, if Bernie was elected and he abolished the filibuster and he, you know, didn't engage in things that, that are typically engaged in, in order to kind of circumvent norms in order to get his agenda through, because that was necessary, right? McConnell wouldn't negotiate. So he just had to, so if, if he did that. You, I, I don't imagine that you would be too concerned about longstanding, you know, norms being violated. You know what I no, mean? You kind of choose well, when to be offended by that. Oh, of course. Well, of course. And I mean, that's, you know, I one thing, just as a quick side note, one thing I think that hobbles a lot of political debate in our country is that we, we tend to have this weird definition of hypocrisy by which uh, no exceptions to it case are allowed, right? That you must be entirely consistent in every manifestation of a given case, otherwise you're a hypocrite. In other words, if... <laughs> right, that's what hypocrite right, means. Right. No, no, but I mean, in other words, the idea that the idea that we somehow think it is inconsistent or opportunistic to say, for instance, that it is good when some norms are upheld and it is good when some norms are broken, right? Like, in other words, the, there are norms that Trump has broken for the most part that I think are are bad. Whereas if Sanders had broken sets of norms that I dislike, I would count that good. My, my point is that there's nothing inconsistent about saying that. Yeah, I have yeah a there is. No, there's no, not. Yeah, it, it, it is because you, you, your loyalty to a particular norm is, mm-hmm. is not solid enough to survive it being violated in the name of an end that you support. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if you are not OK, if you are mad that Trump violates the Hatch Act because that's unacceptable, right. you got to protect the Hatch Act. You got to preserve it. You got to adhere to it. And then Biden or, or Bernie comes along and he violates the Hatch Act, but he does it in order to further like the Green New Deal or universal health care or towards some objective that you supported. If at that point you said, oh, fuck you and your Hatch Act. Then mm-hmm. you are a hypocrite if you are now complaining about Trump violating the Hatch Act. That's my point. Well, and, and I think in that respect, I, you know, I would not be OK with that, which is why I like Biden, because I don't I, I don't think Biden would 
be inclined to do that kind of thing. And I think what we need oh. as a country is somebody who would kind of come in and of course and reinstitute those norms. Regard, you know what I mean? Like, but, a, but Dave, but there's there's what? But, but there's a double-sided element to that too, in the sense that Biden. You know what Biden's defense of the norms is the defense of a very particular set of norms, which which is also, I think, a big issue at play in the hypothetical you set up. Right. Setting aside the fact that I think the Hatch Act is a very good piece of legislation and I think it's a serious and impeachable offense that Trump is flagrantly flagrantly violent, <laughs> which it is. I mean, no, I mean, you, you are absolutely pro Hatch Act. You have to be like a strict in a strict sense. I, I am. I that yeah. you're not wrong. Okay, fine. I'll, so, but I'd, I know I'd have to think of an example in which, I mean, look, I would, I would be upset if Bernie Sanders violated the hatch act, even if it wasn't. <laughs> I'm not worried about the hatch act. I'm worried in a, at a more abstract level. Mm-hmm. I just think that Bernie would be more in, Bernie is such a believer of his own bullshit that he thinks that the end would justify the means, which is what Trump is doing. It, it, at the end of the day, at a bare level, that's no different than what Trump is doing. Maybe and so I think that I am that... I am offended by both of them doing that. And the reason that Biden got that I supported Biden is that I thought he would kind of bring us back toward that kind of center of gravity that, I... that which is good for us. And in that respect, I am not hypocritical when I critique Trump for doing things like this. But you are. Okay, well, two two things. One, as regards Biden, um, whether whether or not it would even be desirable to return to that particular equilibrium that that you think is ideal, the idea that Joe Biden has it in him to shape the forces that are at work in the country in that direction, I think is really naive. And you said you. I mean you. You, Dave, you sound you're starting to sound very much like those those liberals of history who are always vanquished, you know, right, right when right when the fascists come to power. You what? Really sound, no, you sound you sound very much you sound very much of that of that school that thinks, you know, look, this is a both sides extremism problem. Uh, you know, there's there's this need to find moderate solutions and sensible solutions to deep, intractable, uh, centuries long problems that have vexed far far smarter generations than ours. I mean, that's always that's the fantasy of a class that is on the verge of just dying out in terms of having political power, and that's what Joe Biden represents, and that's the probably the best case scenario we can hope for for the next you know four years but i mean that's that's pretty bleak man why oh you you are if you're taking a a 30 year time horizon and you view biden as somebody who picked and i'm curious to get your reaction to to the kamala harris pick Mm -hmm. but that i think that was potentially the most consequential vp selection in a generation, right? I mean, in a, in a weird way, most previous VP, I mean, m- maybe Palin really hurt McCain, and in that respect, that was pretty consequential too. But mm. generally, people are picking VPs. Not, you know, Dick Cheney was not didn't have his own ambitions at the at you know 2008. Biden really didn't either. Um, I, I it it just feels like assuming Biden only you know would would have would would only run for four year term and then not run for reelection. Uh-huh. He's fundamentally anointing Kamala Harris to be the next nominee in 2024. And in that respect, he, he's kind of picking her to be the, the head of the party 
for a decade. It's it's a really underappreciated aspect of all of it. I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I think that's the most I think that's the most interesting thing about her as the pick because it it she she embodies the qualities that you know, she embodies the qualities that the dying generation of like, you know, 70s, 80s new democrats, you know, Clinton democrats want to see the party want to see the party become like that's she represents a vision of the democratic party that i think they consider to be one in their image which i think is what any movement wants to you know bequeath Mm -hmm. you know to the future of to the future of an organization and that's fine i get that it's not my version of what the democratic party should be but i get i get the appeal to the people who won the contest this year about who gets to choose democratic party policy like I get it. It makes a lot of sense. And she's I mean, she she hits that sweet spot because generationally Democrats are all over the map. I mean, she has a good 25 years ahead of her in national life if she wants it. What are your critiques of her? What what do you not like about her? I I I've never liked her career as attorney general. I mean, it's always been mostly the criminal justice thing. I respect the idea that she has seemingly, you know, bowed to the reality of what's been going on over the past few months and has made, you know, noise to change that. But we'll see. I mean, I consider her still to be pretty moderate. Uh, It would be great if she had lived up to her early endorsement of Sanders' Medicare for All plan. That'd be fantastic. And to the extent that she doesn't do those things, I'll, you know, I'll consider her a big disappointment. To the extent that she does those things, great. That's, that's fantastic. If Um, you were advised, two two questions. If you were uh advising Biden, who would you have advised him to pick? And if you were, and if Bernie had won the nomination, and you were advising Bernie, who would you advise him to pick? I that's I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think the bench is the bench. Do people come to mind? Like, who are the people just popping into your mind right now? Like, I think, like for instance, if uh, when Sanders was running, I thought someone like Tammy Baldwin would have been a good pick. Uh, even though, you know, I think I would, actually I just read earlier the statement she put out in relation to uh what's happening in kenosha and it's not great it's pretty mealy mouth so i mean yeah that she would have been a choice i mean what do you by the way quick sidebar quick uh sidebar what do you think of when you hear kenosha i think of tommy boy it seems like the most quintessentially midwestern uh of of cities it's like peoria illinois it's funny i i wasn't tommy boy i i thought of though that's a good one that was that in kenosha it wasn't in Kenosha, but I feel like they pass through Kenosha, or it's mentioned uh-huh. in their, one of their sales trips. Uh, I think real of, diehard fans will have to check me on this. Send mail. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get. We'll, I'm sure you'll get tweeted at or whatever. But <laughs> I think of uh, the John Candy character in Home Alone in the polka band, the Kenosha Kickers. Damn. That would not have come to mind for me. But yes, now I can see him in the yellow right? jacket. In the yellow jacket. Sheboygan. Oh, very, very big in Sheboygan. <laughs> oh, man. You know what's really funny in that movie? I haven't watched it in a while, but just <laughs> thinking of the John Candy role where where they're in the van and they're all like playing jazz or whatever. Yeah. They're <laughs> too funny parts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One is where he he really wants her to try the clarinet and she like doesn't want to. And he keeps pushing and pushing and then she turns it up a notch and it's like, no. And he goes, "Okay." The other scene is when John Candy is explaining to her how his how he left his kid in a funeral home. Yes. Remember that? And and he's like, yeah, (laughs) he's like, 
uh, you know, seven, eight months, he started talking again. It turned out <laughs> fine. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that scene I do remember. Also, Dave. Really funny. Amazing that you have that level of recall at command for Home Alone, and yet you only saw Back to the Future this year. How is that possible? I mean, every time I should have been watching Back to the Future, I watched Home Alone again. Yes, yes actually, that would explain it. Yeah. But no, the Kenosha yeah. kick, I had quite forgotten about that. Well, that honestly, that's a, it's a great juxtaposition to, to the notoriety it's taking on now. It's, yeah, um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think a band or, or a city that, that, uh, really likes the Kenosha kickers would, would descend into racial riots. You know, that shows how far we've come from when that movie was made. You know, it's really interesting the extent to which, you know, this, the post-industrial Midwest that for 25 years now has been written off one way or the other by American culture at large, right. As a backwater, right. As a place that, that, uh, you know, played this hugely important role in the development of the country. And once it was no longer, uh, you know, economically efficient for it to keep doing that, it was allowed to sort of rot. And yet it has been at the cockpit of the last decade of American politics um, and has been, and you know, it was responsible for Trump's victory. In a sense, it's the place that has pushed us to the point we're at now. I just find that an interesting, an interesting sort of dynamic. You don't, that's not really true of any other region of the country in the same way. I don't think I'll tell you my view of these protests and, and, um, uh, and and I'm speaking purely politically here, right? I'm I'm not talking about what, you know, whether they have a right to be aggrieved and, and how the, and and what the morally appropriate way to, to, to do that is right. My whole point is simply this, that these protests make it less likely Biden wins the election than, Right. And that's another thing we were talking before about Trump laying breadcrumbs and like laying the foundation for stuff. You can tell that he wants the protests to continue because somehow he is able to convince the country that that rioting activities that are happening while he's president will happen if Joe Biden is elected. Like putting aside. But that that is insane, Callie. That is insane. But I don't doubt his ability to do that. Okay, so well, that's, given that that's true, no, then that's where why we don't you differ. why don't you all calm down and just no. wait till after the election to start that, protesting and rioting and freaking dang. out suburban people dang. outside of Sheboygan oh who you want to vote God. for Biden? Yeah, so we found the wedge issue, haven't we? Oh my God, man, you went full white moderate. You never go full white moderate, man. <laughs> full oh, white hey, moderate. Well, well setting, but. How can you believe it could cost Biden the election if, by your own admission, it's premised on the thought of a lunatic? It's like it's I mean, because it's, it's he, like people like people people. It's not a matter of whether they should buy into it. It's a matter of whether they do. Except they don't, Dave. Except as has always as has been the case from the moment that peace of shit came down that fucking elevator in 2015 he has not for an instant commanded a the support of the majority of the country right but he won he won because we have this archaic nonsense system this rickety ramshackle grift from 1787 that has absolutely no relationship to the way we live in america today and one reason we know that is because it created this outcome 
I don't accept the premise that Donald Trump's belief that prolonged violence in the streets is good for him is accurate. And again, so I think you this think is part this of that. Is all good for Biden. You, 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 I'm not. I didn't say that. I'm not. I didn't say that. And I think that's that's part of the but problem. It's a zero sum game right now, isn't it? What am What am I missing? Okay. What I would start with would be to say that this is part of that PTSD, right? The idea that because Trump won in a fluke, in a black swan event that was obviously possible, but was a very remote possibility, yet it happens, you know, anyways, we somehow think he has this crafty political genius for this, even it's just this feral, you know, insight into, into the American great unwashed or whatever. And that's just not true. And the reason we know it's, it's not, not true. true, how does he have such a loyal following? He has a loyal following because our country has always had a substantial population of absolute owl at the moon fucking lunatics. All right. And that's just right. But he going to have whether that I mean, I don't know what to tell you about that. This country has been full of people who follow idiotic movements. Normally, we're able to thrust them off to the margins of the system. That's arguably the one good thing the factors did was figure out ways in which you can mostly marginalize crackpot. Well, well, Lord knows Democrats did during the primaries. (laughs) the system worked the way it almost always works man you guys won and i think the fact that we're having this conversation with two hundred thousand nearly dead americans about whether joe biden can take out a win is not exactly a testament to the strategic genius of that okay isn't it a testament to what i'm saying about trump's ability to get people to believe anything and therefore if he feels confident that he can get people to believe that biden would lead to more lawlessness and, and, and that this type of protest activity would help him politically. If he I, thinks that, shouldn't we therefore try and not give that to him? No, no, because, and again, I don't accept the premise that there's that kind of relationship between the protest movements and the Joe Biden for president campaign, but accepting just setting Why? that aside for wait, the wait a minute, wait, wait, don't set that aside because you don't think that these protest movements are going to potentially change how people vote. No, what I'm saying is that there's – So what I'm that's that the point. Though. That's all I'm talking about. No, but all I'm saying is that because the movement is independent of the Biden campaign, it's not like there's any sort of communication or coordination between these two separate things. Right. So in other words, we're not ta- in other words, we're not talking about we're not talking about something that can actually happen in the sense that there could be some sort of, you know, planned escalation or de-escalation in protests in tandem right. with Biden campaign. I just want to make right. sure we're clear on that. Right. Yeah, I but, that's kind of true. But at the same time, I think that I, I would love for Biden to have a sister soldier moment where he <laughs> says that, you know, all where he acknowledges the seriousness of the police brutality problem and the racism problem, while at the same time telling people that it is absolutely unacceptable to loot and protest like this uh, in in, in kind of a a non or, or a more violent way that can appeal to people who would otherwise buy into Trump's narrative. Right. Why, why is isn't he doing that? But that is buying into Trump's narrative because it's buying into the false belief that these protest movements have been inherently violent, when in fact that has not been the case. Did We're you see the shooting about- in Wisconsin last night? It was by a Trump supporter, which yes. is always – can we talk about yeah. QAnon before we go away? Yes, let's – yeah, let's put a pin in that. Put a because pin in that's QAnon. Part, again, Dave, like I, I – 
I really have to wonder about someone who as a Democrat is more interested in calling into question a grassroots, spontaneous, cross-class, interracial, nationwide protest movement against obvious pressing problems in American society. Mm-hmm. It's so important that I ran out of breath to say it. The idea, <laughs> the idea that that could somehow be uh, um, of equal – of uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? The idea that that could somehow be of equal concern to you or a source of apprehension – as the literal fascist violence coming from the president is really worrisome to me, man. Like, where are the priorities? I would, I would interpret it as nothing other than what is the, you know, every every thought I have. Like I've told you, even throughout the primaries, I told you I only supported Biden because I thought it was most likely he would win. I think that, um. How I view these protests, I'm like, I think they're the right thing to do if it makes it more likely Biden would win. And if it makes it less likely Biden would win, I think we should figure out a way to stop them. I don't know why you think that's so crazy, right? I mean, it's it's not that it's crazy. It's that I don't think it takes into account that. Okay, you're, so you're talking from the perspective in which the most important factor for you is Joe Biden's presidential victory, right? Whereas the people who make up large parts of the protest movement do not share that same immediate goal. And just because the goal is not shared, it doesn't necessarily even mean that one is inherently superior to the other. But it's not you, that they don't share it. I think they do share it. I don't think most of the people protesting are Trump supporters. Putting not. aside the counter protest, so, of course. So, Why so they be? do they do share it. They just may not, through whatever kind of uh, tree internal triage, internal hierarchy of, of of kind of priorities, they may not know. They may not fully appreciate the extent to which a Biden victory is undoubtedly the most important near term objective that they should have. So even though they don't know that, I feel like I know that. And there's and and why should I, you know, subjugate that knowledge with <laughs> their flawed priorities? Um, oh man, you are wow. Talk about that is some decadent late Roman shit, man. The barbarians are at the gates and you're still telling them and you're still telling them to speak proper Latin. You know, like, <laughs> no, dude, you're operating. So you're you're operating on the assumption in a very condescending way that you I know, felt you condescending know, while I said that I tried to figure out a way to make the point without sounding condescending yeah. and I couldn't do it. No. And that's if I get if I, I had time, if I had 20 minutes, I could come up with a with like a couple paragraphs, but not quickly on the spot. I think what look, here's what matters to me. Um, the Democratic Party and the Joe Biden campaign are not more important than than the biggest mass protest movement in American history, remarkable both for its spontaneous eruption and its presence in literally every corner of the country. That is of so much more fundamental political importance than the Joe Biden campaign that the Biden campaign does not have some sort of claim on this movement. Right. And to the extent mm-hmm. the Joe Biden campaign cannot win on its own. 
right? That's that's the problem is that absent someone of unique charisma like Barack Obama at the top of the ticket, Democrats can't quite seem to knock out the increasingly unpopular and untrusted Republican Party. So Democrats have two options. They can either draw allies from their left to win or they can draw allies from their right to win. And as liberals have a historical and well-documented tendency to do, rather than work with the people on their left, they would rather work with the people on their right. And that is, and I, I see the Biden campaign in its same 2016 tired ass outreach. Right. Really? Suburban voters. I, I see the same fucking catastrophe that happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016. And God, I hope the latest round of whiz kids are smarter uh, because that's, that's, that's my concern is that they will end up again, blowing what should be the most winnable election in history. So and what do was, you think is more? Me, I would tell Joe Biden that he has, he and the democratic party, democratic party have more to gain with more publicly aligning themselves with, the protesters in the streets than by standing at a distance from them or keeping cool to them. And I think the polling bears me out on that. And I think the fact that, you know, not all Democrats, I mean, some Democrats have some actual instinct and it's sort of understand and that it's a good thing to align yourself with things that are popular, but folks associated with the dominant faction in the party seem cool to it. You know, I mean, and look, maybe that's not entirely fair because um, apparently Biden spoke uh, to the family of James Blake today. I mean, it's not like he's doing nothing, but again, I mean, to the extent that you represent a lot of the opinion that it's really in favor of Biden, that's worrisome to me that you have that attitude toward the protest movements. It's not that again, you know, I, I don't want so, you to think sort of all in the family. This could be seriously, this could be in like nineteen seventy. And we could have, you know, bell bottoms and shitty mustaches and be arguing about this in Archie Bunker's well, he, living here's room. The, I, I just want to clarify something. Huh? Like are are you criticizing me for thinking that the protest movement makes it less likely Biden would win? Or are you pro- criticizing me for for viewing the protest movement and assessing the protest movement through that prism and not viewing it as something that itself should be harnessed, almost as though you would prefer Trump win and, and have a continually growing, vibrant protest that, that, that increases so that in two or three years it's far more aggressive that's, and prevalent than it is now? That's – well, that's not how those these things happen. But no, I'm criticizing you. How do they happen? Matter. Well, they they tend to grow to a point in which the demands they make cannot be cannot be reasonably rejected by the party in power. That requires a Biden victory, right? No one's arguing that because obviously Biden would be better disposed toward the protesters than you know Attila the Hunt. But that being but that being said, what I'm criticizing you for is just this notion that, that you know what's best for a protest movement that you don't really understand and that you don't treat it as an. But you just said it. But you just made my point. You you just said that without Biden winning, there's no way they can get what they want. Right. But then but, why shouldn't whether or not they're doing what they're doing be predicated on whether it helps or hurts Biden? Because I think you are incorrect in your assessment that this harms Biden. 
So the dynamic of the dynamic of the protests has been that when they break out in a given area, there tends to be this initial period of of violence, right, of of looting and fires and direct confrontation, what have you. Um, and then that is what tends the well, the police response to that tends to spark the bigger more peaceful protests, right, that are these sort of mass movements in the streets and that then often themselves get violently broken up by the police. Um, it seems, given this strike, this wildcat strike that is now spreading through the NBA and Major League Baseball directly in response to the shooting of James Blake, it, it seems not likely, I'm, again, I'm not prognosticating because who the fuck can say, but it doesn't seem unlikely that this could spawn another mass wave of people peacefully protesting in the streets in a way that outshadows the violence that's gone on in Kenosha. Leaving aside the fact that the violence that I think is most important to focus on there is not just the shooting of James Blake, but this right-wing vigilante violence in the streets. Some yeah, 17 it's interesting. Has that you know, ever happened like you, you it it does feel like you you know it it the the first battle of any kind of civil war or revolutionary war you don't really know it's the first battle in the war until you write the history book well of course yeah you, you, right like like so in, in that respect i wonder i wonder if what we're kind of seeing now is the prelude to something that like I talked to you before about the future of the Republic. Like, do you think that, I mean, it sounds like you think that America is on the decline. Do, do you think that, that the decline will be precipitated by kind of a, a revolution or a, or, 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 or an openly kind of hostile internal hostile event? Did you see that the Pentagon, and I feel like I'm Chris Matthews here asking you a question <laughs> and then moving on to another one, but, but, but this is related to that. The Pentagon, I read like a few weeks ago that the Pentagon wargamed a scenario yes, where there was an uprising this. of like kids in, in, in the mid 2020s. There was an of uprising yeah, of the people Zoom who were right, people who were like about to get into college that are at that right. point going to be so economically dislocated that they're just going to revolt. And, and the way it would work is not unlike like the way sectarian violence works is you have a segment of the population that to achieve its ends, engages in domestic terrorism, right? Bom car bombs and things like that. And and between, like, the QAnon group and these boogaloos, you know about the boogaloos? I'm sure you do. Oh, yeah. So so talk talk about the, the prospect of all of that. I, I want to know what you think, because I know you're you're like a student of revolutionary history, right? Like, between your, your love and affinity for Russia means you must be an expert. It's, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it is literally my profession. So yeah, is that what you're, is that your profession? Is that like your specialty? What are you writing your I thesis mean, about? I'm writing my thesis on uh, Karl Polanyi and his theory of fascism. Wow. So definitely yes. answer what I, what I just said. The way you think about it in the political science literature is that you think about it in terms of state capacity, right? Does a state have the capacity to enforce you know, it's it's mandate of what a state does, right? Does it uphold a monopoly on violence within a territory? Does it enforce the law, collect taxes, this, that, or the other? And, you know, states have varying levels of capacity 
the United States has typically been thought of as a state with very, very high state capacity. It would seem by a lot of measurements that we are entering a period in which that state capacity is declining and you're starting to see phenomena that are typically associated with that happening in other countries, one part of which is the beginnings of even not necessarily a breakdown in the monopoly over violence, but this uh, increasing permeation between public and private violence in which uh, state, you know, state police authorities, security services, what have you, work more closely with, like in the case of like the CIA or the, or the Defense Department, private contractors like Eric Prince and Blackwater and things like that. Uh, but in the case of local police departments with these militias, essentially. And that's an extremely well-documented phenomenon in American police forces. There's a lot of uh, pretty deep communication and interlinking between local police forces and you know these, these right-wing militia movements that have been part of the landscape for decades now, our entire lives, really. really? I, mean, I remember... Oh, yeah. Remember the 90s, the, the militia movement? I mean, after in the aftermath of like Ruby Ridge and Waco and Oklahoma City. I mean, the biggest terrorist attack in the history of this country before 9-11 was a radical right wingers destroying a federal building in Oklahoma City. I mean, this is this is an outgrowth of that. QAnon, these Boogaloo uh, boys, the Proud Boys. Yeah. Talk this is, about this is, people may not know what that is. And, and I'm not that familiar. It, it feels the, like I've done. A couple of deep dives, you know, for an hour or two over the course of the last few months on both Boogaloo and QAnon. Okay. QAnon in particular seems like it's gaining a lot of traction. But yeah. but the weird, yeah. the, the thing that troubles me, and, and this gets back to, like, what I was saying about the downfall of, and, and, and the sectarian violence, is both of them seem to think that within the next few years, there's going to be a mass insurrection violent activity in this country. Like a fundamental tectonic shift. And at this point, even if that that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, if enough people think it. Sure. Yeah. So what what's how is that all going to play out? (laughs) Probably not. Well, I mean, it's really it's really worrisome. man. that's I mean, this that's part of why 2020 has been so depressing is that uh, it's. Track records for countries pulling themselves out of the spiral at this stage are not great. Um, And we're not exactly. Except for, I mean, this country has pulled itself out of worse spirals before, right? We can acknowledge this. Yeah, but what would you, I mean, that's. I mean, that's a worthwhile question to get into. into, Is that historically, what what would you say this current crisis compares to, to the extent that you can compare it, you know, really to anything in our past? Like, what level does it rise to in your estimation? I would think that. I mean, clearly the Civil War is in its own category, and and this is not that. So I think we should like almost treat the treat the Civil War like Michael Jordan, right? You're talking about who's second best. Um, I I think that we're probably pe- people who were our age in 1929, 1930, 31, mm-hmm. probably felt equally as pessimistic about the future of the country as we do. I imagine people who were our age in the late 60s, early 70s felt that way. I I don't know. I wonder what it was like when Carter lost to Reagan. How how depressing a loss was that? Because we now view that kind of through the lens of history as um, 
you know, back in the days where there was still kind of bipartisanship and, and people crossed party lines and there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. But I don't know how depressed like the diehard Jimmy Carter supporters in 1980 were when Reagan won. Were they as well, depressed as they were devast- will be if Trump wins? I, right? I mean, so it's, isn't it it's, comparable well, it's to that, to- too? It's comparable in terms of your outlook yeah. on the future of the country. Electing Reagan in 1980 to the people who like supported Ted Kennedy's primary challenge of Carter, right? Which you probably would have back then. I think those people were probably very dejected about the future of the country. I think Republicans have been dejected in 1992 when Clinton won. I think they were dejected when Obama won re-election. I think they will be that dejected if Biden wins. But you're emptying you're emptying this of all of its content, right? And you're just saying like, well, this is uh-huh. this was a crisis uh-huh. in this was a crisis in which you know uh, Democrats lost, but then later came back, right? Therefore, this but you're you're not taking into consideration. Okay, what was specific about these crises? Like, what was happening at the time? Like, yeah, in some aspects, it might be like 1931 in the sense of um, you know economic disaster, but it was also true in 1931 that. There was a far greater trust in uh, the governments and a far greater sense of uh, institutional loyalty, enough to weather a really strong challenge from the left that was, you know, much more potent than what we've seen over the summer, you know, here. But that's not true in 2020 in the sense that people don't have that same faith in institutions. They don't have any uh, trust in these sort of, you know, solid commonalities that at other points of crisis were helpful to have around, right? So as a result, I mean, like, you know, the, the but what would you rather be? So far. If, you know, if, if you don't know what your lot in society would be, mm-hmm. right? Like you're behind kind of the Rawlsian veil of ignorance. Would you rather be thrown into 2020 America or thrown into 1931 America? Clearly now, right? Clearly now. Well, us, when we uh, talk about e- even, wait, hold they, on. Did they even have air conditioning in 1931? No, but it's also true that I think if you were exposed to all of the information that someone in the Rawlsian veil of ignorance had, you could deduce that the potential for the United States in 1931 uh, for future development was probably better than its potential in 2020. And that, in other words, like, all right, then if I have to make a choice about where, what arc, what part of the arc of history I want to live my life on, I would rather live in the one that starts out rough, but that improves drastically in the course of my lifetime. And I think that's a more likely bet if you pick 1931 over 2020. But it didn't start out rough, right? In 1931, the last decade has been pretty good at that point in time. Well, no, the depression... The depression was happening in 31. Well, well, fine. 1930, right? You know, the, the, it's not like the America in the 1920s felt like they were on the decline, right? So it's somewhat more precipitous in 1931 than it is now, where I feel like you, like we said, we've been talking about this for 15 years now. You know what I mean? So in that respect, what hap- what's happening now, I'm making your case for you, by the way. But what's happening now is more dire in that it's kind of a natural next step in an iterative phenomenon of events that whereas 1931 felt like maybe 
it, it was it, it was not quite as macro and systemic. But they didn't have Social Security in 1931, right? They didn't have all of the you, – you, the New Deal was coming, but you didn't know that in 1931, and you wouldn't know that behind the veil of ignorance when you had to choose because you don't know what it's going to be like. If Biden wins and there's a Democratic Senate, for all you know, there's going to be a huge you – know, they'll abandon the filibuster and, 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 and build upon the Affordable Care Act and pass like a Green New Deal type thing that would make you very happy. You don't, that could be about to happen. Well, I think look, they're not going to pass a green new deal. That's that is something that they'll that's that's probably uh dead dead to the extent that it won't do any good when we belatedly realize we should have done it. But the filibuster could definitely <laughs> be gotten rid of and that would be that would be a big plus. Biden I, I, or not Biden, Obama when he mentioned that at John yes. Lewis's funeral, that was an unmistakable thing saying he thinks we should get rid of the filibuster right i mean that's all yeah he clearly said we should do that and therefore i think if they win you know maybe biden big... will use it as a negotiating ploy for a period of time and then when they when it doesn't work maybe, they fuck it i mean so okay so let's assume let's assume that um the first day of a biden administration still sees uh senate majority leader mitch mcconnell okay let's, what lever what leverage does Joe Biden have over Mitch McConnell? Well, let's assume he does. I mean, let's assume. Well, I mean, yeah. What I'm tr- I'm trying to think of other variables here. I mean, let's assume the House is still you know in the hands of Democrat. Let's assume nothing has fundamentally changed uh, except possession of the White House. What mm-hmm. convinces what convinces Mitch McConnell to behave any differently towards Joe Biden than he did to Barack Obama? That's an interesting question. It, it you know it it really is I, I I can't imagine what the Supreme Court fight would look like I you know I don't think I can't imagine Mitch McConnell serving as a majority leader in a Democratic administration I I don't know how a Supreme Court justice gets through that how, you know, how could how could that conceivably happen You know Dave see this is. This is why your lack of appreciation of revolutionary politics really, really hobbles your political imagination. And I think this is an object <laughs> lesson for all Democrats. No, because you know you what about Democrats. To, you're about to not. You're, you're about to no, suggest listen. Biden bust norms. I'm sure, but anyway, what? No, here's you no. Know, here's what I have. I mean, what's what the Democratic Party needs? What any political party needs, and the Republicans of you know the Republicans understand this, and it's been the key to their ability to hold on to power despite no one liking them for you know many many years now. But you need a you need a bunch of Jacobins in the ranks who are willing to put on the suicide vest and go blow up whatever target needs blowing up, right? You need representatives and frankly senators who are willing to fall on swords uh, to get things done. And immolate their careers for the greater glory of the cause, because really, if that's if if I'm Joe Biden in uh, in February of 2021 and it's within three votes in the Senate and Mitch McConnell's still in charge, I do everything possible to get rid of the filibuster and just gut it out and just and do whatever is necessary to force you know 51-49 victories on. Any legislation that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to send out of the House, that would be my strategy, because you probably have a nine-month window to do that before you settle into uh, midterm mode and governing becomes impossible. And then, of course, if if 
Republicans make a resurgence in 2022, which there's no reason to think they wouldn't, that's going to lock up any chance of actually making laws for the next two years. You and I gotta don't say, you think that whoever whoever wins the next election will get credit for fixing COVID? Um, I, so in that respect, I, I, I think. But I don't know what that means, Dave, because we none of us know what fixing COVID looks like. What What do you think and it think, looks like? Well, ideally, in a fucking sane world, uh, we would develop a vaccine, ideally in cooperation with our global partners. I mean, and literally every human being who has an interest in controlling <laughs> and pushing back this fucking virus that shut down life on Earth. Uh, sorry. <laughs> month six of this man and we sort of act like it's in the background you know what I mean? like it's sort of like like it's a you know the email scandal or something and not mm. not a pandemic that has upended life as we know. uh so presume ideally you get a vaccine and the vaccine works and you vaccinate everyone and the disease uh is kept at bay and life goes back uh to if not normal at least human uh, that's the best case scenario. But Dave, I mean, you and I, you and I have absolutely no idea what the timeline is like for that. And I don't think anyone does. Really. I, I think, think people generally, th- it, 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 it seems like the consensus is that by this time next year, there will be multiple companies mass producing a reliable vaccine. And why is that the consensus? What, what in other words? Want- what what evidence sustains that belief? I don't know, but I've heard Fauci say that out loud, and I oh. don't feel like he would. Oh, are, what are you? Are you going to start bad mouthing Anthony Fauci okay. on this podcast? You like a Stalinist. Oh, you're saying like, no, absolutely not. I'm saying just because Anthony Fauci says that doesn't mean doesn't give it the weight of truth. I mean, Anthony Fauci is, I think, a a good person trying to do an impossible task. Um, but, but that I, what, doesn't mean – sure. just I mean, because he says it doesn't mean we actually have been reason to believe a vaccine will be available next yeah, year. Yeah, it like, does. We, we don't I don't agree with that. Right. I think that – because I think that he's conscious enough that he wouldn't say something like that unless he thought it were true. And I think that the process he goes through for determining whether or not he thinks something's true is rigorous enough that, that I am inclined to defer to that. At least until somebody else demonstrates that they have more competence to to make pronouncements about this, right? Sure, give or take a few months, maybe. But the fact is, it it, it does feel it, it, it's not. I don't think that this is going to be a massive part of our life beyond kind of lingering cultural trends that it that it kind of expedites, right? You know, home delivery, working from home, things like that. At I, I don't think we are going to be living in constant fear of this virus in two, two and a half years, which um, in the grand scheme of things, me, what if that's, do you think I'm wrong? If that's true, do you also think that in that same two and a half year period, we'll be back down to like 4% unemployment? <laughs> no, but I, but I think, I think that if in, in a year and a half, if heading into the 2022 midterms, assuming Biden wins, uh-huh. If we have a vaccine and and things are and and clearly there's no way that that whatever they do, whatever processes they implement at the federal level, will not materially improve the way things are going. 
right? I mean, it, it would do an injustice to whatever indictment you have of Trump to suggest otherwise. So clearly Biden would come in and, and in a year and a half would implement processes that allow us to be more competent in all of this, whether it's testing, whether it's treatment, whether whatever it may be. So assuming things are going in the right direction then and and the Democrats that I'm sure you agree with are right when they say that you can't fix the economy until you fix the disease. The economy should at that point be moving in the right direction. It's not unreasonable to think that a Biden victory would lead to enough rapid turnaround in the virus and the economy that heading into 2022 is in a strong position. That is, I mean, nothing you don't you don't think that's possible? I think it's I think lots of things are possible. I think that's possible. I don't think it's likely. I, I, I don't think – I mean, I, I don't – then look, maybe I haven't done the reading. It's possible. But I don't know what Joe Biden wants to do about the eviction crisis. I don't know what Joe Biden wants to do about the long-term devastation to whole swaths of the economy. Um, and again, having lived through all of this in New York City, it's really bleak, man. And New York City is on the verge of cutting – Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of jobs, uh, unless they get 12 billion, I think it is from the federal government, or 12 billion at least is what the MTA needs to avoid something like 40% service cuts. Like the fate of 8.5% of the country's GDP is hanging by a thread. And what gets done about that? Like, in other words, the minute Joe Biden becomes president, what gets done? Because it's going to be a long winter in this city, man. Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, and I feel like yeah, there's not yeah. I feel like there's a disconnect between the way this pandemic has been experienced by tens of millions of people for whom life in Trump's booming economy was actually not that great and was not one that made for economic security or upward mobility. And now they're just seeing them. They're just getting squeezed more and more and more. And they're in dire need of help. That I mean, obviously, it's not coming from the Trump administration. Everyone gets that. Um, but we got to have more than a vague hope that that the Biden campaign will come through on that. Like it would be good to have some, some real pledges here. And it's weird to me that the Democrats have not really pushed that message aggressively. Uh, it didn't seem to come up a lot like at the convention. It's not something you see. Uh, it seems on the stump in congressional races. It's, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I hope it works. They're pushing. I mean, they're, isn't I think that's one of the big reasons that um, there wasn't a member they were they were looking at doing like a fourth stimulus bill in August mm -hmm. and and a lot of the re and and one of the big reasons that that didn't go through was because Pelosi was insistent upon um, uh, money for state and local governments like New York right and when Republicans didn't do it she kind of viewed it as table stakes and it didn't. Um, didn't come to fruition. Yeah, man. Hey, I wish, listen, I wish I could fuck up at my job like that and still get a sort of whoopsie daisy. That'd be great. Uh, but yeah. Are you, who are you, who are you, are, are you, was oh, that a, an admonition of at congressional leadership in general? Just they're, they're Democrats or Republicans. Well, Democrats, obviously, they've not exactly covered themselves with glory in any of the emergency legislation since the pandemic started. They've been what are you? Oh, been, what an ignorant ass thing to say. No, it's oh, Dave, by all means, prove me wrong. How what did the Democrats what what concessions do they did they, you know, muscle out 
of Trump and Mnuchin or Mnuchin, let's say. What did they get that what did they get that absolutely the Trump administration did not want to give on? So I know what, what Democrats get, gave on. What did the well what what so the things that initially come to mind on what they got, like mm-hmm. the things that they pushed for mm-hmm. were kind of initially they got um uh benefits for people who were like sick with covid like you could yet you had to pay people for like two weeks if they or a family member were were hit with covid right right establishing kind of guardrails around employee benefit plan employer benefit plans so that it would allow people who are who are vulnerable in that respect to be able to take time off to care for loved ones or kids who are out of school without being fired Right, that and they was thought like, two weeks was the best they could get. Right, right. I mean, just to establish that. Sure. Like, should would you have preferred four? Would you yeah. have preferred six? Maybe. Maybe if you and 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 somebody you hand selected were in the room would be better at negotiating with Mnuchin and McConnell than Pelosi. Maybe. Regardless, she pushed for it. I don't think you could. I I just don't think you know. I don't think you have the understanding of whether or not what she got in this negotiation in the macro sense was a better or worse deal. I'm inclined to defer to her rather than you. Anyway, I mean, in addition, it, it's not what? magic. You know what I mean? It's not like it's, you can assess it the way you can assess all, any other sort of transaction. I mean, it's not like it's some sort of mystical process. I think, I think democratic, the democratic leadership in Congress is congenitally unwilling to play hardball and they are unwilling to, they are unwilling to press the system at the pressure points that Republicans have been very adept at pressing for the past 30 years in Congress. And you can you can dismiss it all you want and you can poo-poo it all you want, but it's worked. And they have mostly dominated that institution to our harm. And it's not that Pelosi or Schumer, I mean, yeah. Schumer is just as bad. It's not that it's not that they're not by I think their own standards doing the best they can do with negotiation it's that their standards are too low to begin with and too unimaginative to begin with too unwilling to cross these imaginary lines that republicans gleefully cross all the time as they as they dance on their way to one democratic majority's grave after another I mean, sir, don't, I mean, don't you think that when Republicans I don't know what you're for, like, you, you don't like when Republicans like hold the debt ceiling hostage, things like that. I am. A, Dave, the Republican Party represents a third of the country at best. They are a distinct minority and they pretty much exercise permanent control over two of the three major institutions institutional clusters in American politics. That's not good for a democracy. That's extremely dangerous. I don't think the Republican Party is 30% of the people. I think you're wrong about that. I mean, if you can, I mean, what are you, what are you basing that on? Trump's approval rating for starters. There's plenty, but, but again, if you siphon out independence, you know, weak leaners, I'm talking about the hardcore, right? I am talking about, the core voting base of the Republican Party, most especially, you know, the various interests in the country that actually provide the funding, this, that or the other. That's a hard third. So of you're, the- you're talking about like the Reagan Republicans, not the Trump Republicans. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? No, I'm talking. 
in a just because Republicans in a very, very, are far more than one out of three people in this country are Republicans. That's not true. Something like I mean, look, a majority of people don't identify as either Democrats or Republicans, even though they vote for Democrats and Republicans all the time. What all yeah. I, okay? All I'm talking about are people who self-identify. The way you identify as a Democrat and the way you inhabit a political culture of Democrats um, is a minority position in American life. It's unusual. It doesn't seem unusual to you or me because it's a very big country, so it's not unusual that you would be exposed to it. But it's not the common run of things, right? What is the common run? Of, what What do you think is the common run of things? mostly politically disengaged people who are either intermittent or non-voters, which, which, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just been, that's been the case, the case arguably forever in this country, but it's certainly been the case for the last several decades. And then you have partisans on either side, and then you have hardcore fractions of those sides. I mean, you know, I'm obviously in a part represent a very, very tiny percentage of Americans. Yes, you do. Thank God. Yeah, it doesn't make them any less correct. Anyway, all okay. eh, eh, very that was a very Larry David esque. Uh, <laughs> eh, eh, eh. Yeah. Well, let me ask you before we go. I want, yes. Well, I want to I want to ask you this. I want to I want to assuming that the country does in our lifetime <clears throat> clearly and unambiguously lose its hegemonic status. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there will be a a a will there be a revolution where there'll be will, will there be a period of sectarian strife or will it be more of kind of a gradual peaceful decline the way britain had i mean putting aside the world wars there wasn't like internal violence in britain they just kind of lost geopolitical clout well right? yeah and it's like, worth it well it's worth but it's worth pointing out. I just want to make something clear about that is, you know, when you say decline, you know, we have this pejorative sense of decline, right? As in like, you know, the, the road right. toward death, right? Senescence and death. I agree. No, I agree that that's, that's flawed. Right. Because that's because that is not when I talk about decline, that's not necessarily what I mean. I mean, um, if you think of Roman civilization, not to God, not to sound like one of those insufferable guys on a podcast talking about the Roman oh, Empire. But no, you're the, you're way beyond that. Way beyond, behind thank you. you. Yeah, yeah, look behind you. <laughs> all, all I was going to say is that we're talking about a society that endured for centuries through several periods of oscillation and decline, you know, and rise and fall, what have you. So it would not, in other words, any it's it's entirely possible to have a sort of decline uh, from America's hegemonic and, I mean, for any power, comparatively rare role in the world. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing incoherent about saying we could decline from that status, but have a society with a far higher quality of life and a society that is more in, in line with our professed ideals. Uh, uh, so in that sense, I think our best case scenario is what you would call a peaceful decline. That is, I think uh, that would be devoutly mm-hmm. to be wished, even though right now it doesn't feel very likely. It feels, well, well, that's what I'm asking. Do, like, what will what do you what does it feel like? It feels like bloody Kansas. It feels like uh, it feels like the 1850s. Um, you have the but, part. You have, but there has has there been a civil war? Like what what would be the last like like the craziest development on the geopolitical stage? Like like a crazier, more unforeseen, more unfathomable development than a like civil war in the U.S. in the next 20 years? What would you compare that to even? 
I mean, it would be of it would be of world historical importance. It would world huge, historical importance. Of course, like, it would be like huge, the Treaty of Westphalia. It would be huge, and there would be. I mean, there would be Chinese intervention. There would be European intervention. I mean, it would be it would be a huge. A huge Jeez, thing. Intervention, but, Jesus. Not, I mean, Imagine not that, like if the U, if World War Three, oh, the U.S. were were the center of gravity, the way Europe was. Right. Can you no, imagine but, being in Europe in the 1930s? Holy no, fuck! Holy very, shit! That is one of that is no. That's <laughs> oh my god! That's something you would very much want to avoid. And and I'm not saying like I'm not saying like Chinese intervention, like troops land. <laughs> no, is, I know, I know. But just like, but the idea that you know a breakaway republic on the west coast might find a helpful foreign patron in the People's Republic of China that would be happy to provide it with the defenses it needed against the revanchist United States, and wouldn't it be sweet revenge for the fact that we have done precisely that to Taiwan for sixty years? opportunity presented itself yeah. you would absolutely do that you would be you would be stand you would be judged before the courts of you know of of you know world historical dickhead political leaders if you didn't do that so yeah i be uh, but in any case i i mean look at the ussr man the ussr collapsed more or less peacefully but then again you know ukraine's been going through this on this this drawn out civil war in the east with breakaway republics there's a revolution sweeping belarus right now i mean it's not politically stable right but those were not countries that were like the 20 you know they those were always countries that were that were a little bit kind of out there right they were never the most stable countries really for a hundred years right well, I mean, it was. I mean, the Russian Empire was. The Russian Empire was actually, in a lot of ways, it's comparable to the United States. It was a major power that grouped together uh, lots of different fractious populations, and it engaged mm-hmm. in a colonial frontier conquest. Right. Mm-hmm. The conquest, <laughs> conquest of Siberia would be analogous to the conquest of North America. So, actually, if you think about it, the idea of an American collapse. In, I mean, we have constituent states. The ingredients are all there for it. There would be nothing out of keeping, I think, historically, with a you know a breakdown along the lines of, say, the breakup of the USSR, with the you know the tensions and the authoritarianism and the border violence that that implies. And we've had periods like that in our history before, and it doesn't seem to me. It seems to me that that's not necessarily likely. It's that it's a possibility in a way I just don't think it's been a possibility in the lifetime of anyone alive right now. And I don't think we're well prepared to deal with it being a greater than uh, a greater than negligible possibility, you know? Greater than ne- what being a greater than negligible possibility? Sorry, I don't. Oh, of 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 something like low level civil war or something or just or serious sustained, uh, you know, and, you know, civil disorder unrest you know police repression what have you right um, in a lot I mean, of ways sparked by these QAnon boogaloo movements right like 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 a, a lot of the social media slash kind of um economic causes of those con- conspiracy theories and how widespread they are i drove back when i drove back from north carolina you would mm-hmm. be shocked at how many of these QAnon like lawn signs and bumper stickers on cars and flags that I saw. Dude, that is so, that is terrible. I mean, that's just, uh, 
it's it'd be one thing if it was just a cult movement, but it's a political cult movement, and that's what makes it so dangerous. And that's why even if Trump is just sent packing uh, in November, right, and, you know, right. we dust we dust uh, you know we we dust our hands of him, QAnon will still be there, and and all of the rot that he is that he's sort of brought to the surface is still going to fester. And yeah. I mean, there's, like, there's nothing there's nothing the Biden administration, you know what I mean, can do about QAnon. That is not a problem that isn't amenable to their to their way of thinking about politics. So what do we do about it? How do we cope with it? It's like I mean, it's kind of like coronavirus, man. How do we cope with this novel infection that we know is dangerous and lethal, um, but we just can't quite convince ourselves of how dangerous and lethal it is? You know, I hope I hope that 40 years from now. We will we will have regulations and guardrails around social media companies and how they're allowed to generate these algorithms that kind of feed people a loop of what they know is dangerous misinformation and yep. how they're profiting off of that. We, you know, I hope that that is eventually viewed the way we now view companies that literally just like dumped waste products into clean rivers. You know well, what I mean? Like, like things that just don't happen to do anymore. That. A great way to do that would be to socialize them and run them as utilities with open books rather than leave them under private ownership. But that is that is a yeah. conversation. Uh, we, relax. Yeah, okay. a conversation. <laughs> We're going to have to wade into those waters, man. Did you see uh, on a lighter note as we uh, uh, draw the curtains, did you see that the West Wing is doing a much more substantial reunion than they've historically done? Have you read about this no, at all? I did not. Oh, Callie, look oh. into this. You got to get HBO Max. They're they're okay. doing like a one of those get out the vote things oh, where yeah? a lot of the cast members are doing it. But they're also I read something quickly. They were they were performing one of the episodes live on stage in L.A. as well as really? having video footage that Aaron Sorkin uh, writes and he's writing the play production of this episode tommy schlami is directing it all Which the people episode? are back well that's what i was about to mention to you and ah. i'm glad we get to quickly talk about this because <laughs> guy i know from law school a fan of the podcast actually is now going through the west wing for the first time and oh, i just I can't I, imagine i can't imagine right isn't that just his great good I, fortune that's his oh. great good for i totally agree I, I feel like i should start watching from beginning to end but regardless, uh, it the you mentioned before Taiwan and the relationship that you, the U.S. has with like China and Taiwan and how they negotiate. It was it, the one that they're doing is an episode where that's kind of a predominant plot line, and I know you know the show well. Do you do you offhand know which one I'm referring to? Predominant. Oh damn it! You're gonna show me up on West Wing. Of course I am. I, I show anybody oh. who dares step to the lineup. On yeah. There are two that should come to mind. One is a later episode where Bartlett, like, quote unquote, unknowingly accepts a flag that is the Taiwanese flag or something when and it really offends China. And there was like a question of whether or not he did it intentionally in order to prompt yes. a discussion. You know what yes. I'm saying? They did a, yeah, that was later on, like the Jimmy Smith's years. And that was similar to what they, he did in the um, – and some spoiler alerts here, but uh, 
it what he did with R- Richie when he mentioned the gun right when he thought that the the he was inter- being interviewed on a newscast and he thought that they had cut so he like admonished the his opponent on the air he was like a 22 caliber mind yes. in a 357 magnum world Yes. Right? And he was like, oh, you're still rolling? What are you talking about? <laughs> but it turned out that it, he, like, intentionally did that. Exa- yeah, yes, yes. That one, yeah, I recall. Um, anyway, uh, so, no, the one that <laughs> – long-winded way. The one <laughs> that they're performing is is Hartsfield's Landing. Do you oh, remember okay. that one? Yes. It's the, that's the one where, where Bartlett is playing chess with Toby in the Oval Office and Sam yes. in his office. Yes, I do remember that one. That's it's a, worth yeah, you rewatching that. Well, that's and that's that's a great one to put on stage. I should do that. It's been a while. It's been a, actually it's been a long while. Come to think of it, maybe that's it part is of a great one so to put on stage. Twenty twenty. I think I yeah. Yeah, you gotta get you, you need a healthy dose of West Wing. Yeah. Really, every month you, you should always watch at least five episodes. We picked up uh, just to have in our collection back in March when we thought you know things could get really locked down. Uh, the DVD copy of A Few Good Men, which has definitely uh, been used to boost morale around here. So yeah, I should move on. These Aaron Sorkin movies, you know, American President Two, I find is so rewatchable. And part of I think my support for Biden is that I think he's the only hope of getting back to a period of like, like when I fell in love with politics and when I decided to kind of go into this field, it was when I like, I like grew up on movies like Dave. Right. And, 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 and the American president in the West wing where it's like so much more of a, uh, just kind of morally upright field. You know what I mean? And, and just like a, a more uh, collegial environment compared to now, right? Like You're imagine just... if the American president came out now and like like they tried to present that as 2020 America. It would be the impossible. The fights that they were having, they would be like, what the, what the hell it would is be this? In a world where Veep exists, you can't possibly make the American president. You know what I mean? It can't, it can't be done. Yeah, when I when I try and like when I'm trying to explain like um oftentimes just like in my in my job I have to explain a legislative process and like a political prognosis of something happening. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when I start out people who are like really not exposed to this kind to this whole world, I tell them that they should imagine Veep, not the American not the West Wing. This yeah. is Veep, you, this is Veep, not the West Wing. So just keep that in mind when you think about predicting whatever's going to happen. Oh, and God help us all in a Veep world. Callie, you're a good man. It's always it good is... to connect. Between now and the election, we must talk again. Hopefully yes. a few times. Hopefully yes, a few times. absolutely. As, as I didn't even tempo... get your thought on the Republican on the Republican convention, but I oh. think we know what you think. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't even want to imagine. We'll circle We'll circle around to that. We'll see what the next huge catastrophe is that brings us back together to talk about this. But until then. May you be safe and well. Talk soon, buddy. Everybody is feeling right. No need to hustle, don't fuss, don't fight. Just put your worries down. Swing your hips around. Rock your head from side to side.